Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to Omar Muellam. At any given time, Omar is splitting his time across many diverse projects, not only in his written work, but also in filmmaking and education. His book, Inside the Inferno, a firefighter's story of the brotherhood that saved Fort McMurray, was co-authored with Damian Asher, who was a fire captain in the city during the 2016 wildfires. Omar also has a new book, On the Way, titled Praying to the West, a travel memoir about Muslims in the Americas. And he writes about an array of topics including food, masculinity, fatherhood, Islamophobia, and art. But it is perhaps his most recent project that is of special interest to writers. Shortly after we all went into quarantine, Omar started Pandemic University School of Writing, a writer's university that gathered authors and their eager students into an online community. It wasn't long before graduating classes formed and the community grew, at a moment when the writing field was going through one of its most uncertain periods. Today, Omar joins us to talk about crafting your best work by gathering together and collaborating. Hi, Omar. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, and congratulations on a new podcast. Thanks. It's it's great to have you with us, and I, I kind of like the uh, the Western representation we're getting, being a Westerner myself. So I'm really looking forward to talking about your work out there and your work in many fields, and in particular, your work as a freelancer, especially during this moment of kind of upheaval in journalism for people working in freelance conditions. So we'll kind of start around there, maybe if you don't mind, just giving us some background on how you became a writer, what inspired you early on, and how you found your way into the field. Sure. I didn't intend on being a journalist or a freelance writer of any sorts. I mean, I suppose I I knew I would be a writer. That's how confident I was. I knew I would be a writer, but I thought that I might write books. I might write screenplays. I went to school for writing for TV and film um, at Vancouver Film School. And journalism wasn't really on my professional radar, though it was very much of interest to me. I was, you know, a news junkie from a very young age, growing up in a Middle Eastern household. The TV news is always on. You're always finding out about what's happening back home. It's never good news, um, but it helps to sort of know what's on your parents' minds. So, you know, just growing up in that environment, I guess I was always interested in it and always made an effort to uh, read the news. What essentially happened was, you know, in the middle of my film studies, I made a friend who was writing for a local free magazine. He was interviewing musicians that he really admired that were kind of impressive. And I think he was getting paid in CDs and concert tickets, Uh, but that was good enough for me because I wanted to do the same. Um, So I started, uh, I asked for his help and I started pitching his editor uh, stories about rappers, indie rappers that were coming through Vancouver where I was living at the time. And uh, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, it was cool to talk to artists that you really admire and it was even cooler to just get published to tell stories, to see your name in print. I think it was Granville and Robson, uh, where I saw my byline for the first time. And it was, you know, it was kind of a transformative experience, I guess. At the same time, you know, I was done school. 
not having a lot of success, I think, with the quality of my film work, both as a screenwriter and, and a filmmaker, and not really enjoying the whole film vibe, you know, the with with respect to the people in the industry, it does attract a lot of, you know, big egos, users, and um, it was, I wasn't really into it. So I think I just, you know, I was looking at, uh, looking for something else that would maybe distract me um, and kind of make me feel a little bit more purposeful and useful. And, you know, one thing just kind of led into another. With my film background, I started doing movie reviews. And movie reviews give you a lot of latitude to write with a strong editorial voice. Um, And that kind of just segued into magazine writing and feature writing. The kind of stuff where you can, you know, you can have a little bit of fun with, with the craft. It's not just straight journalism. So, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of picked at it and... Within two years, I was working as a magazine intern and just kind of went from there. That was 2008. Okay, so you were working as an intern around that time. Mm -hmm. And did it kind of solidify in your mind that, you know, you enjoyed this work so much that why not see where it can go professionally and just kind of keep on that path and let it unfold? Or did you have other... Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It um I think that experience taught me that a one-year plan is good, but maybe a five-year plan is too much. It's not necessarily healthy. It is good obviously to think about the direction that you want to take with your work, but if you're too cantilevered into the future, you could end up putting a lot of undue pressure on yourself. And I think that's kind of what was happening with film. I mean, I was getting really restless. I shouldn't have been. I was you know, I was still really young and inexperienced, and I should have been ready to put in more work to get where I wanted to. But here was an opportunity to just enjoy writing and, you know, and be productive and, and get something out there. So I took it. And then as other opportunities came along, whether it was film reviews or lifestyle writing, or, you know, eventually sort of longer form feature writing, more serious kind of journalism. I just went with it. And that uh, hopeful opportunism, whatever you want to call it, I think that's that's done me well. And I, I continue on with it. My career is ever evolving and goes into new directions all the time. Every few years, I see it seems to take sort of a 45 degree pivot into something that I didn't expect. And, and recently, it's it's pivoted toward documentary filmmaking. So it's it it's nice to be back to filmmaking again. I feel a lot more ready for the, uh, for the realities of the business than I used to be. Hmm. So you're kind of coming full circle in a way. A little bit. I never saw myself as a documentary filmmaker, but that was sort of the natural progression having, you know, waded through journalism and, and, uh, feature writing for as long as I have now. I mean, I'm, I'm going on my 15th year in the business, which is, so crazy to me because it I really just sort of started it on a whim to think that 15 years later I would still be doing it is actually kind of uh <laughs> I mean I'm just thinking about it now for the first time it's kind of surprising to say the least 
Well, and especially because you really turned that into freelancing early on. It was like you consciously made a decision that this was the best way to approach doing this work rather than trying to get a position at a particular publication and stay there for a long time or get a uh, regular column going and keep that up for years and years. It was, it really seemed like you said, okay, like I'm, I'm going to make this decision to be freelance. How did that decision come about? Well, to be honest, I don't know if I thought of it that way. I just saw freelancing as my way in. You know, I didn't really know too much about the industry at the time. I just assumed that this is how it's done. I I don't know if I ever considered the idea of, you know, a staff writer at a magazine or maybe even a newspaper. I don't know if I paid that close attention. Yeah, I mean, again, I just kind of, you know, went with the flow. When I was an editor at a magazine, I really thought that um, freelancing was sort of a thing of the past, but actually what I found was it made me want to freelance more. My experiences editing freelancers, editing writers, um, I, it was, it was eye opening to see that other side of the coin, um, to be on the other side of the room like that. I learned so much about pitching, about writing, about the editing process, about fact checking, um, as an editor, And again, just sort of learning it on the job. I've been very, very lucky. I should say that right now. I mean, I didn't go to J school. I didn't, uh, you know, I only interned for, I think, three, six months, something like that before I had a staff position for the next four years. I've been very, very lucky and people have taken chances on me. But, you know, being a magazine editor, it just made me want to freelance more because I now felt like I had so much wisdom that could only be obtained as an editor. And I was eager to to get back out there again. So I did in, in 2012 after four and a half years. Wow. So you must be a, a dream to work with <laughs> having done the editing side of things. Like, do you find you have pretty good relationships with your editors because of that? I think so. Yeah. 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 I think so. And how is the world for you? Like, you know, we can sort of segue into talking about pitching a little bit because you've done such interesting work around educating other writers on pitching and guiding them through the process. But, you know, just to kind of backtrack from that, you know, we're kind of in a moment where journalism is really on this roller coaster. And, you know, there's lots of material to write about, but perhaps the opportunities, you know, emerge and then fall away in a very unpredictable manner. So how has that been for you in terms of generating ideas and getting them out to publications and following through with them? Is it, you know, a full-time job on its own or, or how has it played out? Well, I, I haven't been a full-time freelancer for a while, uh, not a full-time freelance journalist for a while, because I, over the past four years, I've been writing books, made a documentary, ghostwriting books as well other endeavors here and there. So, you know, freelancing has probably gone from, you know, 80% of my income to probably maybe 25%. So when I do pitch something or when I do take an assignment, it's with, you know, some considered purpose, a lot more than than I used to give it when I was really just, you know, not just trying to make a living, but also trying to build some skills and build a, a portfolio and a reputation. Uh, but I can speak to the climate right now a little bit. It was uh, immediately terrible in <laughs> in March and April. I, you know, overnight saw three really important assignments just evaporate, um, or so it felt like at the time. I had two feature stories and a tour for 
my documentary, uh, Digging in the Dirt, which I made with Dylan Reese Howard, we were going to tour small town, uh, small towns in Alberta and have events there. And all of that just kind of vanished within one week. And that was my income for the next two months. So, you know, that was, I was kind of shaken up by that. And I think that was the first time that I really understood. It was the first time I, I kind of bought into the struggle, the the financial instability and struggle of freelancers. And I know that's kind of a bit of a crazy thing to say, but I have always felt that if you are self-motivated, self-disciplined, if you put in the work to both pitch stories, sometimes pitch stories that, you know, you're not really that enthused about, but it's a good story and people will want to read it somewhere. So you do what you got to do. Like, I I have always felt that if you just kind of have a pragmatism that you'll make a decent living, pragmatism and and discipline and motivation. So, you know, I I was always a little bit cautious uh, about the whole stereotype freelancing being this never-ending struggle and agreeing to to live a life of poverty. I've never really bought into that. The pandemic was the first time that I started to empathize with that a lot more. But I actually think that I've come back around to where I was before on that issue. Because as things have sort of leveled out, and don't get me wrong, um, the pay rates are still lower than they used to be. A lot of publications have folded But there has been a lot of improvement. I've been able to land my pitches again, well, most of them. And the assignments that uh, had vanished in April have come back. It was just sort of a a matter of those publications weathering the storm. So I'm working on those again. But it's definitely an unstable time for freelancers. I can't deny that. And I've seen a few of them already sort of exit the field and It's sad to see, but at the same time, there is limited work in this very competitive field. And I don't believe that those opportunities just vanish. I think that they transfer on to new talent. And it might not be a terrible thing for all the journalism grads and young journalists who, you know, they've had a tough go. And this might be a way that doors open for them is that people have to sort of leave the room and leave the door open for them. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I I like that way of thinking generally, no matter what field you're talking about, that the older generation just has to at some point step aside and maybe perhaps into a mentor role or into a, a kind of senior role, however that looks, to kind of refresh things, make those opportunities available. But I like that idea about just being really pragmatic about it and saying, you know, this isn't a passion project, this is actually just work. It's labor, and I'm going to commit to that idea of it. Individual projects can be passion projects. Right. But I don't think that your career is a passion project. It's kind of a, you know, it's it's a means to an end, maybe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the end isn't necessarily money. The end might be to be a storyteller, to sort of uphold the journalistic values that speak to your own personal values. Anyone who goes about you know, certain endeavors with nothing but passion, I think, can sometimes fail themselves. So let's talk about the the process of developing an idea into a pitch and then selling that pitch. And maybe let's kind of link that to this article you recently published on Medium, 
called Every Freelance Writer Needs a Pitch Bank, You Can Steal Mine, (laughs) (laughs) which I loved because you have this incredible spreadsheet that you included. And it made me think I thought I was the only person with this kind of spreadsheet. And it turns out, you know, many writers have this version of this thing. But it's, it's a very visual display of your thought process, your labor, and also the the ratio of rejection and acceptance and the kind of doggedness you need to pursue those acceptances. So yeah, like maybe just take us through how how your process works and, and how you're hoping to share that with other writers. Sure. When I think I have a good idea, the first thing I'll do is I'll put it in my spreadsheet and label it. And if I feel like I already know the kind of publication that would publish this, I'll start to list them horizontally, first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And there's a reason for that that I'll get to later. But most of all, it's just important to have it listed there so that I don't forget about it later. I might, you know, create a a phone note or uh, something, you know, have have some sort of like small file with a a couple of ideas there, but I won't really jump into it until I'm ready to pitch it. And when I'm ready to pitch it, I give myself you know, half a day to a day to research it. And what I try to do is just um, because I have ongoing assignments, many ongoing assignments all at once, and it's very easy to to lose focus and, you know, in an attempt to multitask, just kind of lose sight of what you're trying to work on. I try to set aside a day for that pitch and I will immerse myself in the material. I will allow myself to go down as many rabbit holes as I want, as I need to. In fact, that's some of the best. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the funnest part. Um, I will cold call people or just start firing off emails. I won't think too closely about, you know, how I'm going to craft those emails. I'll just say like, hey, I'm a freelancer. This is who I've worked for. This is a story that I'm really interested in. I have a couple of questions and... Also, if I do manage to sell this story, uh, would you be interested in being interviewed for it? And I'll, I'll kind of do that in a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a frenzy sometimes. <laughs> you know, by the end of the day, I want to have that pitch written, not necessarily sent because I, I might still want to sit on it, um, but I just want to have it written because if I don't do it at the end of that day, waiting until the next day, I I very well risk losing uh, or forgetting a lot of the information that I've just learned or or losing some of the angles that I've that I've generated throughout that. I obviously want to make sure that it has a timely hook. So I am reading some current event angles to a certain topic, but I'm actually more interested in finding new information that hasn't been covered or just hasn't been covered very much in depth. And for that, I I typically go into sort of library archives. You know, a friend of mine (laughs) very generously lets me use her university library card. So, you know, I'm able to find uh, an incredible or choose from an incredible selection of, of ebooks and, and journals there. And then when I think that I have something fresh, I just I start putting together my paragraphs. And it's usually the same, more or less the same formula. Well, I'll just try to hook them with with sort of an, an anecdote about the story that very smoothly segues into the big question, my thesis. And then I will start to layer that thesis with other uh, bigger questions or angles, trying to make it as you know universal as possible um, while still kind of truthful. 
and then um, you know that will take me about two or three paragraphs and then give them an idea of how I would approach it. Is it going to be, you know, who, who are some of the sources I might interview? And of course, if it's, you know, if, if it really hinges on them, then I want to make sure that I've secured that source before pitching it. That's super important. <laughs> I've made mistakes where I where I have not secured them and then I get the assignment and then I ask the person for an interview and they're like, hell no. Um, so that sucks. You don't want to put yourself in that position or put the editor in that position either because they're vouching for you at those editorial meetings a lot of the times. And uh, yeah, I mean, once once I have sort of my my approach and, you know, a rough idea of the size, then um, if I'm already familiar with the editor, it's good to go. If they need to know a little bit more about me, then I will maybe link up some relevant articles. I never want to give people a reason to Google me. Not that there's you know terrible things about me online, um, <laughs> though I have been <laughs> the victim of a of a you know men's rights activist slandering campaign. But uh, oh I am not a Holocaust denier. I just want to I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> anyway, so but no, I mean the real reason I don't want them to Google me is because uh, you know for one I want to link up, like I said, articles that are most relevant to this pitch. But more importantly, if you Google for my stories, the my best stories aren't necessarily the ones that come up first. You know, I was a, I was a newspaper columnist for uh, a few years, enjoyed the job. But the reality is those were both my most read articles and the articles that I spent the least amount of time on. Um, so I don't really think that they speak best to my my abilities. So, you know, that's that's one of the reasons. Sure, that's fair. And and also you want to reduce the amount of work the editor has to do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and just give them a sense of who you are right in the, in the meat of what you've sent them. Mm -hmm. So then how do you rank your publications uh, horizontally? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, <laughs> a combination of, you know, for whom do, do I think that this story is best, but also, you know, what are some publications that I want to write for that maybe I haven't already? You know, it's a combination of pitching to places where I'm comfortable and places that I aspire to. Uh, I think a combination of both of those is great. And, you know, you're eventually I'm going to have a little bit of both on the same line, um, the same horizontal line, because, you know, as they inevitably are rejected, I want to just quickly turn that you know, that disappointment into another opportunity. And so as soon as a rejection comes in, I, you know, copy and paste my pitch and tweak it for the next publication uh, in my spreadsheet. And, um, you know, make sure that I've changed the name and but also actually tweak it for, you know, to fit their their audience a little bit better, and then fire it off. Um, but, you know, it's uh, sometimes it's like I said, sometimes it's a matter of trying to challenge myself and break into new markets. Um, and sometimes it's really just about um, wanting to find the best audience. And sometimes it's about wanting to work with editors that I, I really enjoy working with again. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like that relationship when you understand each other and, and can work so well together. It just makes the process. Yeah. So much better. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. It's special. It really is. I, I like I really believe that the writer editor relationship is um, it can be a beautiful thing. It can be a frustrating thing. You know, sometimes they can turn ugly man, those, you know, those relationships I've been able to s sustain over five or 10 years, they've 
meant so much to me. Um, editors have become mentors, confidants, and true friends through this uh, profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there needs to be more movies about <laughs> the, that relationship. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think you so. Know, so easily romanticized and and you know beautiful thing. I mean, we've we've kind of reinforced this idea that to be a freelancer is to just like pitch a story, sell the story, pitch another story, sell another story. But that's not necessarily how it works. As you develop a reputation or a relationship with editors, you're probably receiving as many assignments or more as you're pitching. Mm -hmm. Some freelancers I know are, at this point, I mean, they're they're basically assignment writers. And that's, you know, that's really important, too. That's another reason you want to cultivate great relationships with your editors. It's not just that they want to work with you because your work is good. They want to work with you because you're pleasant. Mm -hmm. And having those assignments sent to you. It, I mean, it takes out, it extracts an entire day of work from your life or more if the if a pitch takes longer than that. And certainly some of my pitches have. Um, some of my pitches have required me to do a hell of a lot of legwork. It's kind of a crucial thing. And of course, when you get assignments, you know, you can't do them, you don't have the time or for whatever reason. It's, I think it's really, really important that freelancers don't just turn down the opportunity, but that they, they turn it down but suggest someone else, suggest another worthy freelancer, because I think we really have to support each other. You know, over the years, I've built a little bit of a outside sort of (laughs) virtual office space with other freelancers. We send each other's pitches to one another to read over before we send them. Uh, Sometimes we, you know, we'd get coffee together and take turns sort of bouncing off ideas. Um, You know, that, that, uh, and, and of course, like I said, just sort of passing opportunities on to one another. I think that's really, really important. It's, you know, it's good um, literary citizenship. Um, but, uh, you know, there's there's sort of a natural karma that comes of that, too. Exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, there are those who rise to the top because they are competitive and out for themselves. And then there are those that rise to the top or to the Most next people need to. <laughs> Be really fucking careful around. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the, the community component of writing is is so important for so many reasons, but that's a core one that you really want to feel like you're not just in competition with each other, but you're actually part no. of, of a network that cares about each other and, and wants the field to be a wonderful place to exist in. I think that, look, I mean, the, the truth is, yes, we are a little bit in competition with each other, but it's a very, very light competition. And it is eclipsed by, I think, uh, how much in harmony with each other that we are. I think that if you internalize that, uh, you know, super competitive spirit that, uh, you know, we're, (laughs) I don't know, that kind of like dog eat dog kind of thing. Like it's, if you internalize it too much, it's really toxic. And it's, you're doing a disservice to yourself. I think that even, even getting caught up in comparing yourself to other writers is uh it's a really demoralizing thing that it just i I, it can take up so much brain space so much of your your mental bandwidth that you should be putting toward your own work i like this this whole notion of um competing with yourself as the great bret hart would say you know trying to be the best there was the best there is the best there ever will be um and and to do that he would you know he had this idea that he he was really wrestling himself 
And um, I can't believe I'm making a <laughs> wrestling reference here, but uh, I, I don't know. I like, I, you know, as I've always found his philosophy of self-improvement, challenging himself and competing with himself to be really, really inspiring. And, you know, it's, look, it's not a secret that this industry attracts a lot of big egos. It is a business in which we literally put our names on our work. You know, not everyone gets to do that. So I think we're already like, it's already self-selecting for big egos. And I think the sooner you can become aware of that, uh, become aware of your own ego and how you can sort of, you know, check it at the door, I think the, the better off you will be. Definitely. Yeah. And the, and the idea that if somebody else is doing something, it means that you're not, right, that you somehow lost out yeah. is just not true. You know, everyone's got their own timeline, their own path that they're following in terms of getting their name on something. Um, so to view it competitively is is really detrimental to your own, you know, artistic development, ultimately. Yeah, I think so. And, and look, look, even if you are of the mind that you need to compare yourself to other people, that doesn't necessarily bring out the best in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that it doesn't necessarily bring out the best in your work because they might not, you know, that they they might not be on your level, right? You might, right. you know, they, they, you might be aiming low. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that the only thing that you need to really think about is, is this story better than my last one? Mm-hmm. So then when, when you carry that kind of um, momentum and motivation forward into your work, then, like, I guess I'm curious about how you, you've you come to write about so many different topics in an age that really privileges specialization in a way. You've managed to really cover a lot of ground in your story. So, like, does mm-hmm. this come from just a... I always refer to it as inputs and outputs, right? So your output can only happen when you've got a lot of input, right? That's what generates mm-hmm. ideas. So what are some of your inputs? How do those ideas come about? That's a really cool way to, to think about it. Um, I mean, I think of it as cultivating my ADD and using it for <laughs> for good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I, I think that having worked at a magazine that where I wrote a lot of, you know, wrote about a lot of topics and edited about a lot of topics. I just kind of built a capacity for, for, for generalization, I guess I do like, I, you know, I have some niches. I, you know, I'm really interested in uh, immigrant stories. I'm really interested in Western Muslim experiences and and, you know, occasionally I, I'm interested in writing about wrestling. Let's say a publication then has accepted your pitch and you're off to write. Um, so then what's the process like? And we'll, we'll, you know, first start talking about research, but then maybe take us through the writing process too, how that generally unfolds for you. Sure. And I'm going to, you know, speak on the assumption that it is um, a feature article with, let's say, a, a six-week deadline, a four to six week deadline, which I know sounds like a luxury. Um, and it is a luxury is, you know, is the, the truth, but that that is sort of the nature of most of the work that I do. The first thing that I'll probably do is, um, again, spend 
uh, just as I did in the pitching process, spend a day or two just kind of immersing myself in in as much uh, reading, watching documentaries, listening to podcasts. You know, I uh, my eyes will get tired, and uh, and I do get <laughs> I, I I can get bored easily. So I try to like mix it up like that. Sometimes I will you know go on a on a run or walk, listening to articles, sort of in in like a robotic voice using the Pocket app. Um, but I just I just want to keep my head in the same world for as long as possible as my thoughts start to uh, percolate. Once I think that I've I've got enough information to start putting out interview requests, that's then I'll start putting out interview requests. I don't do short interviews. I usually ask for at least an hour of people's time. Um, it's just kind of the nature of my work. I want to get as in-depth as possible. I am going to, I often don't even know what kind of details I'm fishing for when uh, I meet with someone. I just know that I, you know, if I see a thread, I want to pull on it. And that takes time. In pre-pandemic times, I would, as much as possible, do those interviews in person, or at least the primary interviews. Certainly my, you know, my central subject or central character, I will ask straight up for some privileged access Mm -hmm. Uh, that might include shadowing them at work, interviewing them at home, sort of riding along, um, you know, say if they are, you know, an example is, I, you know, a profile I did about a notorious real estate agent. Um, we did like a three-hour interview in the car where he just kind of drove around the city, taking me to different neighborhoods, showing me where he grew up, but also like where he kind of made his fortune, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm, you know, I, I do narrative uh, journalism, so my stories need to read like narratives. And you don't get that unless uh, people give you the access you need. And, and really trust you and physically open up their homes to you. How do you develop that trust? I guess I just kind of try to put them at ease. I, I, I offer information about myself. I try to be relatable. You know, if, if we have something in common, if I agree with their beliefs, or even if I disagree, but I think, you know, it's, it's important that they know that, you know, you do sometimes see the world or certain situations the way that they do. I think that just kind of puts people at ease it shows them that you're you're listening and it's it's a very like it's a very scary process being being interviewed and as you know whatever you can do to make them comfortable i think you know it's it's worthy to do it and i guess i i prep them a little bit you know i will sometimes send them articles of mine and i'll say like this is the kind of style that i write in just so you know so that is why i'm i'm hoping that i can ride along with you. Or that's why I just, you know, I want to put it, uh, be upfront with you right now that I'm, uh, you're going to hear from me a lot. <laughs> you know, maybe we can start with a, with a one hour interview, but I'm going to follow up, you know, over the process of, of writing this article. As I get more into the writing process, I, I might start text messaging with, with my subject just to sort of, you know, punch in some details, you know, what color was your car? how old were you when this happens? Stuff like that. You know, another thing that I'll, I get is, uh, I'll, I'll tell them that I'm going to ask some stupid questions <laughs> that it's going to, it's going to sound irrelevant. You're not going to understand why on earth I want to know about the color of your car. 
But, you know, I let them know that I I ask these stupid questions in order to sort of create scenes to really capture their personality and just to sort of give as much depth to things as possible. And that helps, I think, to give them a sense of ownership or maybe even control over the story, because probably the scariest thing about being interviewed is realizing someone else is telling your story through their eyes Mm -hmm. and you're basically relinquishing control as the interviewee. So to be able to offer those little tips and, and, you know, bits of info about your character must be reassuring to them as well, even if they seem silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'll, I'll do other things, too, where I'll, I'll just kind of ask them, uh, you know, very open-ended questions. You know, it's, it's good to obviously get people's opinions on things, but I think as soon as you ask for their opinion on something, on someone, especially if it's, you know, it's topical, the self-consciousness kicks in. Um, So I try to ask more open-ended questions where it's more about recalling how something felt or recalling experiences or, you know, just sort of those kinds of more comfortable questions. Um, Try to keep them uh, as as sort of the majority, I guess, and, um, you know, just sort of punch in to, to get their their opinions and their judgments uh, every so often. Yeah. Our conversation with Omar doesn't end here, though. Join us for part two, where I'll ask him about his book, Inside the Inferno, and his new writing school, Pandemic U. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash MFA. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Omar Muellam for taking the time to talk with us. His latest book, Inside the Inferno, a firefighter's story of the brotherhood that saved Fort McMurray, is available from Simon & Schuster. Further Reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editors are Kirsten DePina and Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.